Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, God's Covenants. The Bible is structured by a series of covenants, all of which are focused on and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The goal of these covenants is to create and redeem a people in whom God might dwell so that they will glorify and enjoy Him forever. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Well, good morning. Everybody can come on back to our seats. Uh, And as you're coming on back, we can open up to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to be looking at Genesis 17 today. I'm not going to cover everything about it because we're going to be coming back as we're studying God's covenants. We're going to be looking at some of the questions about who is the seed or the Abram, uh, the offspring of Abraham, who, uh, what does God mean by the promised land, uh, what is circumcision. We're going to look at some of those things. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis 17 and God's covenant with Abraham there and talking about the obedience of faith. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 14 and then 23 to 27 just to kind of give us a little bit of the context and then we'll dive in and talk about it. So as always, it'll be up on the screens. It's in your booklet as well and you can follow along in your Bible uh, or if you've got an app with the Bible, you can follow along there. So Genesis chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the words of your covenant Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. (coughs) Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then down in verse 23, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on the same day. 
And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. A few years ago, uh, I had the privilege of getting to go to Egypt to visit the families who had been, uh, their sons and husbands had been killed on the beach by ISIS. Some of you may remember the famous picture of the 21 people on the beach in the orange jumpsuits and ISIS uh, put them to death for being Christians. And we were there to minister to their families, but while we were there, we were trying to learn about the whole situation in Egypt. And we went and visited this site that you can see a picture of here. It's a massive holy site for the Coptic church. And this is a picture from kind of one of the sides. There'll be another picture coming up now where you can see from the bottom. This thing seated tens of thousands of people. It's huge. And there were all kinds of pictures around it, and there's all these stories about why it was a holy site. But as we walked out, as we walked up these stairs to leave, we walked into this next thing you're going to see right here, a tattoo parlor. Because nothing says holy site like a tattoo parlor. So I'm announcing today Bay Ridge is opening up a tattoo parlor right outside in the front lobby. So we stopped and I took this picture because we were like, uh, is there a reason why there's a tattoo parlor here at the holy site? And the reason we discovered was the Coptics have a practice. When you are a Copt, you tattoo the cross on your right hand where you can't hide it, where it's seen. It's a visible symbol that you are part of God's people, that he is your Lord. Though they live in a country that's about 90% Muslim, though they're under severe persecution. In fact, we were there because 20 of those 21 were from Egypt and had been put to death for refusing to recant the faith. So they take a tattoo on their right hand as a symbol. So it's not a random thing. This it makes perfect sense that they were actually doing this. And I thought about this this week because of God's covenant with Abraham. God tells Abraham there's going to be a sign of the covenant between us, and it was a physical sign. It's a little different, obviously, in that it's not generally seen by people. But it was a physical sign and a physical reminder to them that you are in the people of God, that God has made covenant with you he is your covenant Lord and uh, has graciously brought you into covenant with him, but therefore you have obligations in return. So we've been talking a lot about Abraham and his faith. We've seen in all the covenants up to this point, they're all uh, something that God graciously gives. God is always the initiator of the covenant. We'll continue to see that today, but we want to talk about this issue of Yes, we're justified by faith, but what about obedience? Is there anything to do with obedience? And what does it mean for us to be in covenant with God, to be his people? So that's what we're going to look at today in Genesis 17. Now let me remind us where we're at, because of course Genesis 17 is not where Abraham's story begins. It begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And you remember God appears to Abraham in the, in the fullness of the biblical account. Abraham is part of a pagan people. They have many different gods. But God appears to Abram, uh, Abram at the time, and he makes these great promises. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, <coughs> God says to Abram, I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So remember, we've looked at this the last couple of weeks, that God here is promising four different things to Abraham. First, he's promising posterity. You're going to have descendants. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're one childless older man, but I'm going to turn you into a nation. That's in verse 2. Provision. I'm going to bless you. You've left everything behind you. You you left your country, your father's household, everything, but I'm going to take care of you, Abram. Again, in verse 2. Prominence. Everybody who knew you is behind. You left your family's reputation behind, but I'm going to make your name great, Abram. Verse 2. And then finally, protection. You need not fear, even though you're surrounded by people who are potential enemies, I'm going to protect you, Abram, and care for you. And then in Genesis 12, 7, God summarizes this by appearing to Abram, and he said, to your offspring I will give this land. So God here kind of summarizes and says, look, I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to give you land. I'm going to provide these things for you, even though you don't have either one of them. And then you remember we saw last week, as you, as you move forward, Abram sometimes obeys, sometimes doesn't obey. Uh, but we move forward to Genesis chapter 15, and God appears to Abram again. And he says, he comes to him in a vision, he says, don't be afraid, Abram, I'm your shield, your very great reward. Again, Abram, you don't have to fear. You were just in this battle with nine different kings that were fighting, and it could lead you to being afraid, but don't worry, I'm your shield, and I'm going to bless you. I am your great reward. And so we saw last week this covenant ceremony. You remember the splitting of the pieces and all the stuff that God did there? And we're told in Genesis 15, 18 that God made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I'm going to give this land. So once again, he's saying, you're going to have descendants. Because Abram, as you remember, was like, Lord, I'm an old man, and you've promised me descendants, but I don't have any. You've promised me land. I don't have a square inch. And God here is doubling down and saying, what I have said I'm going to do, I am going to accomplish. And you remember last week we saw that in the covenant ceremony, where normally two of us would walk between the pieces, we would both vow on our own death that we'll keep it. Only God goes between the pieces. Abram's asleep. God says, I promise that I will bring this covenant to pass. I will keep my part, or else I would destroy myself. And even if you don't keep your part, I'm going to keep it, and I'll bear the covenant curse, which, of course, is a picture of the Lord Jesus coming. And all of this is before our text in Genesis 17. Now, the reason I'm reminding us of all of that is we have to understand before we come to anything, Abram hasn't been asked to do anything. This has all been God's gracious promises. Because in God's covenant, his gracious promises and his faithfulness are always prior to any human response. It always begins with God, not with you and me. And if we get that flipped on its head, we're going to completely distort the gospel. And we're going to completely distort what it means to be the people of God. Being the people of God is not primarily about what I do. It's primarily about what God has done. 
and anything else is going to be a response of gratitude from me. And so all of this is prior to any response from Abraham. In fact, the only response we've read about to this point in the story really is Abram's response of faith. Remember in Genesis 15, 6, we looked at last week, which is a verse that is quoted several times in the New Testament. We're told, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. God's making these astounding promises, and Abram's response is not that he's got to do a bunch of things, but rather, I believe. I trust what you are saying, and God looks and says, that I count as righteousness. Your obedience wavers. Today you're doing okay, tomorrow you're not, but because you believe, I credit that, I count that as righteousness. And so the proper response, the first thing for you and me to understand is what God is looking for is a response of faith, believing his promise to us. And just like Abram, those who respond to God's covenant promise in faith are counted righteous. They are counted as if they have never violated God's covenant commands. They are counted as if they have actually kept all of God's covenant commands. And I remind you, that was in Genesis 15. In Genesis 16, Abram makes one of the biggest mess-ups of his entire life. You remember? God's going to get descendants, so yes, I'll go sleep with Hagar. I'm going to do all of this mess that's going to create all kinds of problems. So, But Abram is counted as righteous, not because of his actions, but because he is trusting in God. And this is, in fact, the only way that people have ever been brought into a relationship with God, faith. This is not one way, but there are many other ways There is only one way into relationship with God. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, talking about the gospel, actually goes back to this account in Genesis 15. And in Romans 4, 1 to 5, he says, What then shall we say our forefather, uh, Abraham, Abraham our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Because that's always the question to ask yourself. Does this leave me a place to boast? Does this leave credit for me? And if the answer is yes, you might realize you're off on the wrong path. This is not about you and I getting credit because we don't deserve any. The only thing that Abraham's bringing in is the only thing you and I are bringing in, which is our sin. And so he says that he would have something to boast about, but he says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts. Again, in Greek and Hebrew, the word trust is the word faith, is the word believe. It's all the same word in either language. The one who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So Paul's saying, Abraham was justified by faith, not works, and God counts as righteous those who believe just like Abraham did. And he goes on in the very next verse, and he says, look, it's not just Abraham. Let's go forward into the time of the law, and I'll bring David forward as an example. How was David part of God's people? 
He says in Romans 4, 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. This is quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now tradition tells us that David wrote Psalm 32 after what incident? Bathsheba. Somebody remind me, what did he do with Bathsheba? Right, there's murder, there's adultery at best, possibly worse, possibly forcing himself upon Bathsheba. It's a mess. It's the biggest disaster of David's life. And that's when he writes Psalm 32 is when he's been forgiven and he realizes his righteousness is not based on what he does. He doesn't get to say, well, but I had the Goliath thing. Okay? Goliath doesn't make up for Bathsheba. It doesn't for any of us. And so David says, if you're going to be blessed, you have to be forgiven. You have to have your sins taken away. And so David is justified by faith apart from works. He lives under the law, the time of the law, but he is justified by faith alone. And this is because justification by faith alone has always been the only way we become part of the people of God. There is no other way for you and me. There was no other way a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. There was no other way the moment Jesus was on the cross. There was no other way the moment before he got on the cross. There was no other way in the days of David or Moses or Abraham or Adam and Eve. From the garden, if you're going to be justified, you're going to be justified by faith alone. Now, I bring this up because this is what justification is. But that should lead to a question. If you follow Paul's arguments in the book of Romans, well then does that mean that I'm free to do whatever I want? And the answer is no. God's call is obedience flows from faith. Now, why do we say this? What's going on in our text? Well, notice when we come to Genesis 17, so all this that I've been talking about is all of these years. And it's been at least 25 years we've tracked with Abram's story from Genesis 12 to Genesis 17. So this is not a short time. It's a long time. But notice when we get to Genesis 17, God begins again because he wants this very clear. I'm going to start with what I will do, Abram. I'm not going to tell you something. First, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do for you. And so notice there in Genesis chapter 17, God says, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. Now, you've got to remember, Abraham's how old at this point? Right? He, he's 99. Okay? He was 86 when Ishmael was born. He's 99. And he's hoping that Ishmael is going to be counted as a descendant. But God is telling him, no, God is now tripling down on the promise. In fact, Abraham, you are not only going to have descendants, I'm changing your name from Abram, which in Hebrew means exalted father. I'm changing it to Abraham. And that change of a couple of little letters there means it moves from exalted father to father of many, father of, of, of nations. And so God is saying, I'm promising you I'm going to do this, and I'm even going to change your name. So just like when you walk out and you see the stars every night, Abram, it's a reminder 
of the promise I made for you. Well, now every time somebody calls out your name, it's no longer going to be Abram. It's going to be Abraham. Because you're going to be reminded of my gracious promise. And Abraham, it is, it is an everlasting promise. Between me and you and all of these descendants, I'm going to bring out of you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to do everything I said. And then notice at the very end there, he says, I'm giving this a, a, this a possession and I will be their God. This is the covenant motto that is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. I mean, when I was a Marine, we always, you know, Semper Fi. That was our, that was our statement. God's covenant motto is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God here promises this to Abraham. And so, once again, even when we come to the chapter where God's finally going to start commanding something and requiring something of Abraham, it again is overwhelmingly about what God is going to do. But then notice, when we come to verse 9, God does tell Abraham, you're going to have to do something. And this is where he says, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So just like that Coptic tattoo parlor I showed up there a few minutes ago, they were going to take a sign in their flesh that you are part of my people. Abraham, this is what it means to be in covenant with me. You are to take this sign as a literal physical outward sign that yes, you are responding to my covenant, that you believe in my covenant, that you are trusting in my covenant, and you are to do this. And notice, this is not an option for them. He tells them what's going to happen in uh, verse 14. It says, any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Now God's doing a pun here. Because the word circumcision means to, to cut off. And so he's saying, look, if you don't cut off like I've required in the covenant, then you're going to be cut off from the people of God. That's what's going to happen to you. If you refuse to take the sign of cutting off, you yourself are going to be cut off. And you must do this, Abraham. You, your descendants, Everybody in your household, because he's the head of the household, and this is to go on and on and on. And notice what Abraham does. Now, you got a, you got a picture here. If you're a 99-year-old guy, I might have a question, like, is there a plan B? How about a different sign, God? How about, like, a nose ring or something? I mean, there's got to be some, and not that I would particularly like a nose ring. I'm not that kind of dude, but... But something is better, anything is better, there's got to be a plan B, right? I mean, let's be honest, come on. You'd have to have this conversation with God, right? Uh, you know, can we just start it with the next generation? But that's not what we read, actually what Abraham does. Now, in the intervening verses, he actually falls down and he says, can't your, God, there's no way you can fulfill all these signs. Put your blessing on Ishmael. And God says, no, my blessing is going to be on Ishmael. But since you laughed, 
you are going to have a son, and you're going to name him Isaac, which means he laughs, because you laughed. You didn't think I'm going to fulfill it, but I'm telling you, 99 years or not, I'm powerful. I will do what I said. You do what I told you to do. And so then we read, down in verse 23, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. We read in the following verses, Abraham's included. There isn't a protest that he's too old. He obeyed. It is clear, decisive obedience. Now, the reason this is important for us, I'm going to come back later again and talk about the entire biblical record of what circumcision means and how it's developed in the Scripture. But I want us to see today there is an obedience that flows from faith. Justification is now and always has been by faith alone. And that faith now and always has produces obedience. There is no such thing as I'm going to just be the disobedient people of God. I'll take the blessings, I'll skip the commands. It doesn't work that way. True faith is an obedient faith. Notice that circumcision, we're told, when Paul looks at this, he says it's a sign and a seal of the righteousness that you already possess. So this is not to get God's favor. In Romans 4, 9 to 12, he's saying, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? He says it was not after, it was before. He was credited as righteous in Genesis 15, 6. He didn't get circumcised until Genesis 17. So clearly it was before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul's saying, look, circumcision's not why he was justified. It wasn't for him and it actually isn't today. There are people who are not circumcised, but they're justified because they have faith like Abraham. And there are people who are circumcised, and they are justified if they have faith, like Abraham did. Otherwise, it means nothing. It doesn't account anything for them. So God's covenant provisions and promises were all given long before Abram was commanded to be circumcised. Justification is is grounded in Abraham's faith, not his works of circumcision or anything else he did. Circumcision is a response to what God has already done. And Paul says this is true for you and me as well. You are justified by faith. You are justified by faith alone. But that faith always, always, always prompts a lifelong growing obedience to God's commands. And if it does not, it's dead faith. It's not actual faith. Faith produces obedience to God's commands, and let me be clear, not just religious rituals. There are some people today in our culture 
they like doing the religious thing, which I've never personally understood. I wasn't religious, quote unquote, until I became a Christian. I always thought it was kind of weird, like, you know, sleep in on Sunday, go fish, hunt, do something else. I didn't understand wanting to do the rituals. Well, let me be really, really clear. The obedience we're talking about is not just accepting that I like religious rituals. It is a life that is characterized by growing obedience to God's commands. Commands that are popular and commands that are not popular. Commands that fit with the culture and commands that do not fit with the culture. Commands that make sense to you and commands that make no more sense to you than getting circumcised when you're 99 years old would make to you. It's obedience to God's commands. Now, why do I say this? Notice the call to Abraham is more than just circumcision. It's not just a religious ritual. In Genesis 17, 1, when God appears to Abram, and it looked like it might have been like 13 years because of the whole Ishmael thing, and God comes back to Abram, and he says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. He doesn't just say, I'm God Almighty, therefore I'm going to give you a few religious rituals. Abraham, I'm your covenant Lord. I expect you to walk before me, and I expect you to walk before me in my ways. You're not to walk the ways of the nations around you. You are not to do what other people do. You are to walk in obedience. God is looking not just for outward circumcision, and we'll see the scripture is really clear. Circumcision was never just about an external physical act. God is looking for a wholehearted embrace of the ways of God. Circumcision is just a visible outward sign that Abraham and his descendants are going to be distinct from the nations around them. Now this is really important because there are many today, look, let's just be honest. There's a lot of commands in scripture that people don't like. They're just not popular in our culture. There's an entire industry of people trying to explain away what God has called us to do and to be. And to explain away and to say, I can embrace this activity, this lifestyle that directly contradicts the scripture. We had a, recently there was a guy that was running for president whose lifestyle is directly contradictory to the scripture. And he said, if you have a problem with me and my lifestyle, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with my creator. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't have any problem with your creator at all. I do have a problem that you're proclaiming that your sin is what God wants you to do. That I do have a problem with because we're not allowed to do that. We cannot change the word of God. Now, the New Testament is really clear on this. For example, in 2 Timothy 2.19, remember this is Paul, Mr. Justification by Faith Alone. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And thanks be to God, I am so grateful for that. And... Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must 
turn away from wickedness. It's not an option. It's, they're, they're inscribed. They're the two halves of the same coin. Paul, in the book of Titus, says this. He's speaking of some people on Crete. And he says, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Boy, tweet that out today. But this is Paul's words, writing by the Holy Spirit. These people claim to be believers. They they claim that they have faith, but their actions deny their claim. Their lifestyle actually tells me they really don't have faith. Because everyone who truly confesses the name of the Lord must depart from wickedness. There is no saying, well, God made me this way. God made me a serial adulterer. God made me a liar or a thief. No, he did not. That's that's my choice of sin is what that is that is distorting and warping who I am. And so God's gracious covenant is never a license to embrace wickedness, but rather it provides the power to turn from it. And I want to remind us when we're doing this, because this is so important today, the reason God's covenant and gospel do this is because what they are meant to do is restore God's good intentions in creation. Remember, as we've looked through this series, God made covenant all the way back at creation. And he's never forgotten what his covenant purposes are. And sin is not natural to who you are as a human being. And it is not natural to who I am as a human being. Sin is a deformity. It is a cancer that is eating away and changing who we are. Whatever sin that is. And so God's gracious covenant that is meant to restore his original purposes is always going to say, leave the sin behind. Because the sin always comes to steal, to kill, to deform, to destroy. That is always what it does. That's what sin and wickedness are doing. They are attempting to distort and destroy what God made in creation. And so God says, look, you are my covenant people by grace. And you are justified purely because of faith. And your obedience is always going to be a mixed bag. But if you make the statement and the claim, I'm part of the people of God, And I'm going to wholeheartedly embrace this sin. The scripture tells us what you're actually belying is that you actually haven't responded in faith. You actually don't believe God's gracious promises. The Holy Spirit has actually not yet worked in your heart. Because when the Holy Spirit works in your heart and mine, he works in holiness always. And it's imperative for us to understand this. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean? Again, in coming weeks, I'm going to come back and look more at what circumcision is specifically. But I want to talk about these two aspects. And it's so important because, as we've seen throughout the covenant series, there's oftentimes two ditches, okay, to avoid. 
And on one side, there's a ditch. And many Christians today make it sound as if we are justified by our works, and we are not. Do I understand justification is by faith alone? Your standing as righteous and holy before God, my standing as righteous and holy before God, is not based on my works. It is based on Christ's works. And it is based on me responding by faith. In fact, justification comes from the forsaking of any attempt to justify myself. Trying to think that I somehow, you know, I'm not trying. We, we, we had another politician recently said they were going to stand before God based on certain policies they've done and that was going to get them into heaven. And I was like, I hope to God somebody around them is going to explain to them that is not going to earn you righteousness. Whether I like those policies or don't like those policies, that is no way to get into heaven at all. Do we understand that, that justification is by faith alone? And friends, this is really, really good news. It is awesome news that your standing is based on what Christ has done. And that's because you and I, like Abraham, Abram has good days and bad days. And, and I wish I could say, well, by the time we get here in his story, there's nothing but obedience. But that's not the case. All the way through, there's obedience and there's disobedience. But what there always is is a grasping of God's promise by faith, a true living faith. And so it's good news for you and me to know God's response to me is not shifting and changing. It is fixed and it is firm because I'm his child because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of God's gracious covenant promises, and all that is called for from me is faith. It's good news I don't have to save myself. It's good news I'm not standing here preaching today because I've got everything right. Simply not true. Don't ask my wife, but she will inform you. Absolutely, I am far from having everything right. Okay? Simply the way it is. Do we understand that? And so the first question, which I always ask, but it's imperative. You're not a Christian by being here. You're not a Christian by going through walking together and becoming a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church. You're not a Christian because you give. You're not a Christian because you serve. None of that. Have I trusted in Christ alone for my salvation? Do I understand that? Do I believe that? Do you believe that? That's issue A number one. Second question that arises from this text is do I understand that true faith produces obedience? True faith is not simply intellectual assent. That's what Paul said. They claim to know God. They're giving intellectual assent to something. James, if, if you watch on uh, Tuesday, we're going to be dropping an after-hours video. But what about in James, where James talks about faith and works, and is he contradicting what Paul says? And the answer is no. James says if you have faith that doesn't produce works, that kind of faith doesn't save you. That kind of faith is the same kind of faith the demons have. That's simple intellectual assent. True faith 
that actually embraces Jesus Christ in all who he is and all that he is doing is a faith that produces a desire to know, love, serve, and obey God. That is what faith does. We will never be perfect. Perfection is not, God remembers we're but dust. But there is a desire uh, to, to do this. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, a, a Christian writer and, and pastor who actually uh, just died last year, but he wrote a book that was entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it was based on Psalm 120 to 134, and our life as pilgrims. Friends, that, that's what the Christian life is. I'm falling down, but I keep heading in the same direction. It's a long obedience. From here to the day Jesus comes back, I'm walking in that direction. And just like justification by faith alone is good news, let me say sanctification, growing obedience to God, is also good news. Because sin deforms you. And it deforms me. Make no mistake, Satan is never for one second out for your good. Always out to deform, always out to enslave, always out to destroy. And so being told, hey, I can be a Christian and I can have my sin too, is saying, hey, I can keep destroying myself. That's not good news. The things, and please hear me, our culture is proclaiming all sorts of craziness as freedom. But friend, writing the word freedom over your enslaving document doesn't make it any less slavery. You're still a slave at the end of the day. God's good news for us is that we are not only justified, but he begins sanctifying us. It's good news because the Spirit is empowering us to walk away from sin and towards God. And it is good news because God is working to restore your true humanity and mine. The gospel is opening up for us the first chance we have ever had to be truly human. Sin's not truly human. It is a later addition that is warped and deformed. It's a disease that, that's down in our DNA now. But God is working to get it out. <clears throat> what we're talking about here, and I'm going to remind, this is a, an old song that uh, some people may remember. Uh, a guy named Perry Anderson actually wrote based on when we were talking about circumcision years and years ago. And it was called Circumcise My Heart. But, but notice the, the lyrics in, in this thing. Circumcise my heart to obey your word. Speak into my life deeper through your spirit's knife. Circumcise my heart to obey your word. When I tend to stray or choose another way, circumcise my heart to obey. That's faith. That's the prayer of faith. What's there that doesn't need to be there? Take the knife and cut it off. 
Doesn't matter that I'm 99 years old. Long as I'm breathing, I want to be more conformed to the image of Christ. So here's the second question for you and me. Where is the Spirit speaking of sin that still needs to be cut away in my life? Because if you're here and you're breathing, you have sin that needs to be cut away. And so do I. I thought for a minute last week I didn't. And then, <laughs> and then I woke up. You, you, you and I, okay, I became a believer in 1978. 42 years in. And there are still areas where the Holy Spirit is working and saying, this needs to be changed. And even in some areas where I'm far better than I was 20 years ago, but there's still areas where the Holy Spirit's like, well, I've cut away. There's still a lot more that needs to be cut away. Where's the Holy Spirit speaking to you and to me? This is the time when, when more traditional churches really tend to be stressing Lent, and we have some years done that. But, but I would encourage you, this is a time where we fast, we pray, not to get justified. Okay, none of, none of that makes me the child of God. But it is a time to seek and to say, Holy Spirit, what's deforming me? What's enslaving me? What is in me that does not look like Jesus? Would you please come in and would you cut it away from me? So I want you to think about that for a moment because we're going to stand in just a moment and close in prayer. And I want us to be asking the Holy Spirit. It might be an attitude that is in your heart or mine. It might be unforgiveness, fear, not trusting God with something that he's doing. It might be a behavior pattern. And I want you to think, again, not just religious ritual, okay? I, I, I remind you a time that the Holy Spirit spoke deeply in my life was about gossip at work. And, and God revealed and said, that is unholiness. You're, you're participating in conversations standing around the water cooler that are ungodly. And it does not matter that everyone else is saying the same things. You may not speak that way. Where's the Holy Spirit speaking to you? That's what we want him to reveal so we can say, Lord, I, I want to be your people. I want you to tattoo your name and your character on me. I want to be stamped, not just with religious ritual, but I want to be formed into the image of Christ. So let's stand together, and we will pray together and conclude. Holy Lord, how gracious you are to us. Lord, when I look back at my own life, and I was 16, and running hard in the wrong direction, rejecting you, rejecting even 
the good ways I had been taught by my parents, you were gracious and kind to save my wicked soul. Father, that is the testimony of everyone who is part of your people. When we were turned away, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were loving our sin and our idolatry, you were gracious and you came to us and you saved us. Father, how good is your gospel. It truly is good news. And Father, how good it is to be part of the people of God, to know that Jesus Christ, you have walked between the pieces, you have borne the covenant curse, that we might have every blessing of God. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. But Lord, we confess, I wish I could say, Lord, that my sin ceased 42 years ago. But it is not. Lord, there every day are temptations. There are ways I turn from you in thought, word, deed. Lord, there are areas where you have formed and fashioned me to be like Christ. And there are areas where, to my shame, I find myself trying to push the Spirit's knife away. Father, we confess this morning before you that we sin. But because we are your people, because we have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we also confess that we want to be made more like Christ. Lord, we do not simply want fire insurance. We want to be your holy people. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to speak to us. Lord, where there is disobedience, reveal that to us. Lord, where there is sin we have not yet even considered, would you show that to us? Lord, whether it's fear, unforgiveness, the words of our mouth, the works of our hands, would you show it to us? And Holy Spirit, I pray you would not only show, but you would come in by the Spirit, but by, by your own power, Holy Spirit, would you come in and would you put to death whatever does not belong to the kingdom of God? And would you cut that away? And would you empower us to be like Jesus? We admit that in our own flesh we cannot do it. But we say thanks be to God that we not only have been forgiven of our sins, but you are here to empower us that we might walk in newness of life. Lord, I pray for every one of us here who have been baptized, that we would look back on that day of baptism as Abraham was reminded from his day of circumcision that he was your people. That we would look back and say, 
we are the people of God. And in baptism, the old man was put down and we were raised to walk in newness of life. Lord God, would you please pour your Holy Spirit out upon us to empower us that we might be witnesses for Jesus Christ, both with our words and our lives. Lord, I also pray if there's anyone here who is struggling because there is this sin that we're just not wanting to lay down. Father, I pray you would give us eyes to see the sin for the ugliness that it actually is. That we would not attempt to embrace that which is our own destruction, but rather would push it away by your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, I pray, fill us. Spirit of God, I pray, empower us. Spirit of God, I pray, conform us to the image of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go forth, filled with the Holy Spirit, blessed, and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.